many masks I've got under here? Yeah, I just walked up here and looked under my pulpit. Every time I walk up with a mask on and I take it off and I leave without it, and I've got just got piles of them under there. So, if anybody needs any slightly used masks, um, a couple of announcements, real quick. First of all, we are one week into our 21 days of prayer, so encourage you guys if you're not taking part in that already to go ahead and take part in that. Um, we're at week two right now, starting today, and um, just continuing to pray through different different topics. And then we're meeting Wednesday nights. <clears throat> last uh, We'll probably do it again this week. Last week we met out in the parking lot, and um, it was nice. Kind of spread out a little bit, worshiped together, prayed together. It was, a, it was a nice time. Started at 7, ended right at 8, so about one hour. Um, encourage you guys to be a part of that. And also, if you are not currently signed up, to get involved in one of our um, home fellowship groups, make sure and talk to Jen and connect with her because we really want to get everybody plugged into one of those groups. You can kind of, I know that especially the way things are right now, there's not a lot of fellowship time after church, you know, and everybody kind of rushes off and, you know, food is kind of what keeps people here and we can't have food right now. So um, so we're going to do some home fellowships and just keep people kind of plugged in and connected to one another. So I encourage you guys to, if you're not on the church email list, make sure and connect with Jen. Get on that list, and you can get all the information you need to sign up for the home fellowships. Let's pray before we get into the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come before you this morning, Lord. And we just, we're so glad to be here. We're so glad just to be able to enter into your presence, Lord, and, um, and that we have the freedom to to open your word and to, to proclaim your truth. And Father, we pray that you, would, that you would meet us here, you would speak to our hearts, you would convict us as needed, encourage us, comfort us, Lord, and that, that your spirit would just reign in your church. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. I have been involved in ministry in one degree or another, since I was about 17, I started teaching a, um, a Bible study at my high school when I was um, a junior year in 1992. And from that time on, yeah, I've been a youth leader, a youth pastor, a missionary, a church planter, a, an assistant pastor, a senior pastor. I've done a lot of stuff in church. And um, I've observed ministry from a lot of different vantage points. And, you know, I've noticed that there's, you know, there's a lot of problems that arise in different church bodies and in different ministries. Uh, but here's an observation that I've made in, in the almost 30 years that I've been serving in ministry. Do you know what the main problem is in the church? More than anything else, really, the main problem in church is you and me, right? The problem is us. 
The problem is that the church is filled with people. And people are messed up. People are broken. People are self-seeking and self-serving. People are selfish. Oftentimes we wrongly judge other people. Oftentimes I'll base other people's motives on my own issues and my own past experiences. And many of us, we came from other churches. And a lot of times we left other churches because those churches had issues. Right? And we didn't like the way they, and you can fill in the blank, right? The pastor there, he preached too long, or he didn't preach long enough, or they were too liberal, or they were too conservative, or worship was too loud, or it was too quiet, or it was too traditional, or it was too contemporary. We didn't like it because they came back from COVID lockdown too late or too early. Or they were too strict with masks. Or they weren't strict enough. Or they had too much emphasis on gifts. Or not enough emphasis on gifts. <clears throat> right? And, and so many people have some issue. And some issues are legitimate, real concerns. And frankly, some aren't. And it may be that you've been legitimately hurt by your church leadership in the past. Hopefully not by me, but maybe. Or maybe by other church leaders. You know, and, and as ministers of the gospel, as pastors, as your leaders, you know, we, we do stupid stuff sometimes. We stumble. We, we, we fail. We don't always do the right thing. And sometimes, sometimes those failures, they're not, they're not sin, right? There's a difference between sin and failure. Sometimes leaders can have good ideas, based on good desires and good motives, right? They're based on honest desires to please the Lord, but they were just dumb ideas, and they didn't work. Sometimes we just fail. Sometimes things don't work out the way we wish they would. And sometimes as, as leaders in the church, we need to stick, take a step back and, and reorganize. And sometimes we need to to look at the way we do things and learn from our mistakes and kind of reprioritize and reorder. And that's really what we're going to see here as we open up Acts chapter 6. And we're just going to look at the first seven verses this morning. And as we open up this passage, we're going to see that in this early church, there was a failure. There were some mistakes that were made. There were some complaints in the church. I know that's shocking, the people who complain in church, I mean, we, we've never had that, but I've heard it's happened other places. But mistakes were made, adjustments were made, and we're going to see that the gospel went forward powerfully. So go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 6. Seems like we've been in Acts about three years already. <laughs> already to six. We got our next decade and a pla half plan, huh? Verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So remember, 
at this point, there are probably 10, 15,000 people in the church. And this happened in just, just a couple months, really. In just a few months, the church went from just a couple of disciples cowering in that upper room to tens of thousands of followers. And, and as, as, these, as these massive numbers of people came to faith, right, the organization began to grow. And you have to remember these apostles, Peter, John, James, most of these guys, they were, they were fishermen. They weren't CEOs of big companies. They weren't corporate managers. They weren't administrators. <clears throat> and so as they're trying to lead this ever-expanding church, they began to experience some growing pains. And as we've noted before, many of the new Christians were, they were Jews, but they weren't from Israel. They were part of what's referred to as the dysphoria, the, the dispersion. They were Jews who had been scattered throughout the Greek empire in the past. And so these Jews, they were still devoted religious Jews, but they didn't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. Definitely not as their first language, if, if at all. And so these Hellenistic Jews, they had their own translation of the Bible. Sometimes as you flip through the footnotes of your Bible, you'll see it says the Septuagint says blah, 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 blah. Right? The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so these Hellenistic Jews, they didn't really identify with, with Hebrew culture. They were ethnically Jewish, but culturally they were Greek. And, and we see this all the time in our culture because we live in such a, a diverse, multi-ethnic culture. Right? The other day I was talking with this lady and um, I knew that she, was, that she was Russian. But I don't know if she, if she spoke Russian or not. She didn't dress like she was Russian. She didn't have a Russian accent or anything like that but I knew she was Russian because I saw she was carrying around this little Russian Orthodox Church icon with her and I and I asked her about it <clears throat> and I met her dad and her dad I think his name was was Sergei or something like that and he was he was very clearly Russian he spoke with a very a very thick Russian accent and, and you know, I was thinking about this this daughter and the father right they're the same ethnicity they may have shared similar religious views, but the daughter grew up in a very different culture than the father did. And because of that, I'm sure that she viewed the church differently than he did. And I'm sure that she had a, a very different worldview than her father did. And that's exactly the case here as we're looking at the Hebrew Jews, and the Hellenistic Jews. As I said, the, the Hellenistic Jews, they were ethnically Jewish and culturally Greek. Very different worldview than the Jews from Jerusalem had. And Luke here 
he calls the Jews that were still living in the Holy Land the Hebrews. So he makes this distinction between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And I think a helpful way to understand would be this. The Hebrews would have been very traditional, right? They would have been very old school. They would have been, they would have been like, in our culture, they would have been the, the King James only. Only sing hymns in church and only with an organ group. And um, they probably looked down on the Hellenistic Jews. They viewed the Hellenistic Jews as sort of cultural traitors almost. They didn't keep the traditions. They didn't speak the language. And, and how could you be a Jew if you didn't speak Hebrew? And the Hellenists, on the other hand, they would have looked at the Hebrews as, as very quaint, kind of country bumpkins, very much stuck in their old ways, their old traditions. They were the kind of people that, <clears throat> that needed to get with it. They needed to catch up to the modern world. And, and, and this analogy popped in my mind in first service. It was like, the, the Hebrews would have been flip-flown Jews, and the Hellenists would have been iPhone 12 Jews, right? And, and, and they were very out of date in that way, very not up to the cultural norms. And so these, these Hellenistic Jews, they were visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost. And remember, at that particular Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit had that huge outpouring and, and all those thousands of people got saved. And remember we talked about when we were in Acts chapter 2 how, how all these foreign Jews came and the Christian community there in Jerusalem, they took them in. And they began to, to care for one another and to take care of these Hellenistic Jews. And at some point the apostles realized there was a need for the church to take care of the widows in the church. Because at this time, very often, the widows would end up in, in extreme poverty. Typically in those days, in that culture, the, the wives depended on their husbands for all of their provisions. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity for, for women to produce their own income and so the result was when the husband died, especially if the wife didn't have family close by, her, 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 her fate was, was utter destitution, extreme poverty. And so the early church started a program <coughs> to distribute food and funds to meet the needs of these widows. And I think we need to note, as we get into this passage, that the church, they were doing this with, with a good heart. They were doing this with good intentions. But as this program began to get off the ground, there began to be kind of rumblings and grumblings. <clears throat> there was discontent among the church. And somehow the Hellenistic Jews were, were not getting their fair share of the charity. Or or they were perceived as not getting their fair share. And, and the people are saying, look, the, the Hebrew women, they're getting, they're getting the choicest of the donations. The Hebrew ladies, they're getting the lamb chops. 
right? And the Hellenistic, they're getting, they're getting government ham and government cheese, right? They're getting the, the bottom rung of, of the donations. And I don't know if this was reality or if it was just perception. But either way, this was a situation that the apostles needed to get ahead of. Because there was potential for it to wreak havoc in the church. There was a potential for there to be a great schism, a great division in the church. And there was also a great potential to distract the apostles from their primary mission, from their primary ministry. Verse 2, we're flying right along, aren't we? And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So this is a big meeting they have. It says that the full number of the disciples, thousands upon thousands of these Christians, they gathered in one place. And they said, look it, we, the apostles, we need to be spending our time studying the Bible and, and, and preaching and proclaiming the gospel message. If we spend all of our other time, all of our time doing all these other tasks, how are we going to fulfill our primary calling? What are the disciples saying here? Are they saying that they are too good to wait on tables? That they're above that sort of work? No, I don't think that that's what they're saying at all. This word serve here, or to wait on tables, that word is diakoneo. And that word, it can mean to serve, but it also has this connotation of, of administration. The apostles weren't saying, oh, we're above this kind of work. We're, we're the apostles. We're the anointed. We're the, we're the men of God. That's not what they were doing. They're saying, look, we recognize what the Lord has called us to do. We recognize that people have different gifts and different callings. And they realized that it wasn't good for them to get bogged down with administrative duties. Administrating this, this feeding program. Remember we talked a while ago about um, 1 Corinthians. Paul's talking about how the, how the church body it's made up of, of many different parts, right? Many different functions. He says, look, we're not all a mouth. We're not all hands. We're not all feet. We have many parts to form one body. And the apostles here, they recognized that there was just too much that needed to get done and that they could no longer do it themselves. And they, they realized that they needed to figure out what they were supposed to be doing and to do that, not to try to do everything. When Denise and I first, um, first planted the church in Belize City, we, out of necessity, we did everything at church because there was no one else there, right? We drove the church van, taught Sunday school, cleaned the bathrooms, set up the sound system, led worship, visited people, cut the church grass. So we did everything. And some of those things I was good at doing. 
And some of those things I was not good at at all. But I had to do them anyways because there was nobody else there at that point. But as time went on, and as the church began to expand and the church began to grow, a few things happened. First, we found that there was just more work than we could handle. We just couldn't do everything anymore. <clears throat> and second, right as that happened, the Lord brought people who could do those things that we couldn't do. They brought people to do the things that I either didn't have the time to do or didn't have the gifting to do. And, you know, I, I could have clung to those things. I could have said, you know, I, I want to do everything. I, I don't want to let go of anything. You know, I could have said, what's going to happen if I'm not taking care of everything? What happens if this person, if I give them the job and, and they don't show up? What happens if, if they don't do their job? And I see that a lot of times in smaller ministries. You know, what happens is the people who are doing things, they, they don't want to get let other people get involved. This is, this is my thing. This is my ministry. This is what I do. And what happens is people start to think that the, that the church can't function without them. That, that if I don't do my part, the church is going to fail because the church is built on me. The church isn't built on me. The church isn't built on you. The church is built on Jesus Christ. And he's going to see us through no matter what. And I suppose I could have kept doing everything myself. But I wouldn't have been able to do anything well. I wouldn't been, have been able to zero in on my on my primary calling, teaching the Bible and ministering to people. I would have missed out on that. And second, other people would have been robbed of their opportunity to serve the Lord and be used by Him. And third, the whole church would have been robbed. Right? If I were to say, look, I don't want any other worship leaders here. I, I want to play. Number one, I would have been spread too thin. Number two, the worship leaders would have missed out on the opportunity to be used by God. And number three, the whole church would have suffered because I'm not a worship leader. I know about two and a half chords. You know, and I just, it's not, it's not my calling. I recognize my gifts, what they are and what they aren't. And I think that it's just as important to recognize what your gifts are not as recognizing what they are. And think about this. I heard another pastor say this, and I, and I like the idea. He said, you really don't want a pastor waiting on your table. He says, because pastors give you what you need, not what you want. And so the idea is this. <clears throat> you go to a restaurant and you order deep-fried pork chops and onion rings and a Coke and some cheesecake. And the pastor says, well, to tell you the truth, you're looking a little chubby lately, friend. How about I give you some celery and water instead? And for dessert, how about if I give you an elliptical and some running shoes? 
right? We would make terrible waiters because we don't give people what they want. We give them what we need. And the apostles realized, I think, that they needed to focus on teaching and on discipleship. They realized that they needed to focus on prayer. But they also recognized at the same time that those other things needed to get done. It's been said that ministry is both works and words. Ministry is both physical and spiritual. Now, my job primarily is to teach and is to equip and to train and to raise up leaders. But the church still needs to get clean. The books still need to get kept. The bills still need to get paid. The guitar still needs to get strummed. Right there are both physical and spiritual needs in any ministry. And as the church grows, the body kind of has to specialize a little bit. Churches need to know, you know, who's called to what and who has the ability to do what. And it's kind of like this. You know, in rural areas or like in slower real estate markets, even slower housing markets, guys in construction, they can kind of do everything. You get into construction and you can do foundation work and you can frame and you can drywall and do plumbing and finish carpentry and kind of become a jack of all trades. When I started construction in the mid-90s until the kind of mid-2000s when, when things were just booming, everybody was specialized. And, and I, not only did I frame houses, I specifically framed production kind of track houses. And, and that was my specialty. And I, man, I can, I can frame like the wind. I can build something. But that's the only thing that I can do. I don't know how to do anything else in construction. I can't drywall. I can't do finished carpentry. I can't put in cabinets. I can't do any of those kind of things. And it's sort of the same, I think, as the church begins to grow in numbers, there has to be very specific skill sets. People have to have different abilities. Right? I personally, I, I have no organizational skills. I am the most disorganized, all-over-the-place person. That's not my gifting. I, I have vision. I have good ideas. I have people skills. I can teach. Those are the areas that I'm gifted in. But I, I can't organize my wallet. You go into my office or my house, I've got little stacks of stuff everywhere. Right? I'm I'm in this perpetual state of chaos all the time. Nobody wants to hire me as their office admin because it's just not my gifting, right? And we need people who are specialists and who are good at certain things. And it's like this. If you, if you get shot or you break an arm, you're not going to call me to fix you, are you? You might call me to pray for you, but you're going to go to a doctor, because they specialize in those kind of things. You're not going to call an ex-carpenter who preaches the Bible. Right? You, you need to have people who are specialized in certain things. Now, some churches tend to only focus 
on the spiritual. They tend to only focus on teaching and discipleship and good theology and evangelism and, and worship. <clears throat> but they, 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 they tend to leave out the physical needs of the people. And some churches only focus on the physical needs. They focus on, on social justice. And they focus on, on all these programs. And they focus on, on homelessness and helping the homeless and, and doing soup kitchens and, and food banks and literacy programs. And, and those are all good things. But you can't focus on those things at the expense of the gospel message. You can't focus on those things to the exclusion of, of, of Bible teaching and preaching and, and good doctrine. There has to be a balance. There has to be words and works. Every ministry has to have a physical aspect and a spiritual aspect. And people in church need both of those things. And something kind of interesting that we're going to see a little bit later in the text. The people who the Lord uses to meet the spiritual needs of the church are very often those who have been faithful in ministering to the physical needs of the church. And on the other side of that coin, those who serve in ministry, we need to remember that we are servants. If we ever get to feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm too good to take out the garbage. I'm too important to pick up a cigarette butt in the church parking lot. Number one, that's wrong. And number two, the Lord's going to humble you if you start to take that attitude. If you start to lift yourself up and exalt yourself, guess what's going to happen? The Lord's going to bring his little hatchet and chop you down a little bit, take you down a couple notches. The Lord doesn't abide with prideful servants. That's sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? A prideful slave. It just doesn't make sense. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Before we get into the meat of this verse, I just want to note something here. The disciples say, therefore, brothers. There was this understanding that even though these guys were culturally different, even though they dressed and talked and thought and acted different, they recognized that there was brotherhood there, that there was unity in Christ. There was a recognition that they were all part of one body, that they all served the same Lord together. There's a recognition that they were all equally cleansed by the blood of Christ, that they were all equally desperate to be forgiven of their sins and, and to be born again. 
So the disciples say, okay, brothers, you guys are dissatisfied. You feel like, like we haven't been fair. You feel like we've been showing favoritism to our own people. Well, here's what we're going to do to rectify the situation. I want you guys to select seven men. Why seven? A typical Jewish court had seven members. And so that was sort of a natural default number for their committee here. So it says, I want you to pick seven guys with the following criteria. They need to be well-respected. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit. And they need to have wisdom. It says, find these guys and give them this responsibility. Number one, he says, they need to be well-respected. And I think we all realize that. People serving in the church should have a good reputation, right? You don't want somebody who's got a reputation as a, as a thief and a liar and a player, right, in charge of your church. It just, it's not a good picture, right? They need to be a person of, of known character. They need to be a person of, of a quality character. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have brand new Christians serving in ministry. And we don't even really have mature Christians who are new to the church serving in ministry. Because there needs to be a period where we, where we get to know people and make sure that they are of good character. Make sure that they are faithful. Make sure that, that they are, are full of the Holy Spirit, as the text says. Right? We need to make sure that people serving in ministry, that they, that they actually know the Lord. We need to make sure that people serving in ministry are actually Christians. We need to be careful that we don't have unbelievers leading Bible studies. We need to make sure that we don't have unbelievers heading up ministries. And he says that leaders need to have wisdom. Leaders need to be wise. Leaders need to know how to do things, right? If you're going to be a teacher, you need to know how to teach, right? If you're going to if you're going to drive the church van, you need to know how to steer and shift and use the brakes. Worship leaders need to know how to play guitar or piano and sing. Tech guys need to know how to use PowerPoint, how to manipulate stuff on the computer. And so once we as church leaders, once we find these people, and once they've been around for a while, and we know that they know Jesus and that they love Jesus, and they know how to do stuff, then we give them responsibility, Right? We delegate responsibility and we delegate authority to them. But it has to be in that order. If, if people want to serve in ministry, you give them some responsibility. Right? And if, if people who are, who are serving in ministry kind of under my leadership, if they show that they're doing a good job, and it sounds kind of funny saying it this way, but if they're doing a good job implementing my will, Right? If they do a good job implementing my decisions, if they show good judgment, then you begin to give them authority to let them make decisions on their own. And it's like this. I would have guys in, 
in Belize sometimes who, who felt like they had a call to ministry and they'd say, hey, I want to help out with youth group. I want to I teach the Bible. And so I would say, okay, cool. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach this book of the Bible. Or I want you to teach this passage of the Bible. And I want you to do it this way. And after a while, as they're faithful, and they do a good job, and they exercise good judgment, and they finish that job, they'll say, hey, pastor, I finished that. What's next? I don't know. Now it's your turn. Now you decide. Right? You figure it out. Once people are faithful and responsible, then you can give them the authority that goes along with that. And that's what the disciples did here. They found guys who were known to be faithful believers, and they gave them this job, and they give them this, this opportunity to serve. And they said, look, you guys handle this, and then we can focus on the calling that the Lord has given us. And in verse 4 it says, we need to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. We pointed out earlier in verse 2 that that term to wait on tables, to wait, was the Koine Greek word diakoneo which means to serve or to administrate. And that's the same word here used for ministry. When he says that we need to devote ourselves to the diakoneo, the, the ministry of the word. The apostles weren't saying that they were above serving other people. They were saying that they are servants of the people, but in a different way. That their primary focus is on teaching the word. And what they said, verse 5, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So we read through this list of names here. And it's interesting, these names, they're not... Hebrew names, are they? What are they? They're all Greek names. They selected Greek Hellenistic Jews who were believers to make sure that the Greek widows were taken care of. And that was a very smart move on their part. No one is going to accuse the apostles of, of a misappropriation of resources if it's seven Greek guys who are in charge of it, right? But notice two names in there, Stephen and Philip. Right? These two guys are going to go on to be very well known in Scripture. Much of chapter 6 and chapter 7 are dedicated to Stephen the martyr. Then after that, we, we begin to see Philip the evangelist. And, and these are guys who become great men of faith, great servants of God. But right now, these are guys who are just trustworthy servants. These are guys who are faithful in the little things. Faithful waiting on tables. And as they were faithful in the small things, the Lord begins to give them bigger and bigger things to do. And that's exactly how ministry unfolded for me. When I first moved back up to Washington after Bible college, we were going to Calvary Chapel Eastside, and, and Denise and I went there for about a year, and um, 
one of the youth leaders said, hey, Joel, you want to help out with youth ministry? Okay, I guess. And so for like a year, I set up chairs. And I set up speakers. And one day, everybody else was gone, and they didn't have anybody to teach. And they said, well, I guess we can ask Joel to do it. Nobody else is here. Right? And then I sort of became the, the fill-in guy. Right? I was upgraded. I was promoted to the substitute. And, and still setting up chairs and doing all that stuff. And over time, all the other youth leaders left, and, and I became the youth pastor for a while. And then after that, after seven years of that, the Lord moved us to Belize, and we planted a church there. But it started with just doing small things. And we're reminded of that in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, where very clearly he says, he says, do not despise the day of small things. As we're faithful in the little things that the Lord gives us to do, he begins to increase our responsibility. Whatever you're doing right now, whatever your present calling is, you need to be faithful in that. If you're not faithful in the little things that you're called to right now, you're never going to move forward in your Christian walk. You're never going to expand the, the breadth of your, of your ministry. If you refuse to minister in the small things, the Lord is never going to call you to, to big things. These, verse 6, they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So Stephen and Philip and the other five guys, they're brought forward, and the apostles, they pray for them, they lay their hands on them. Basically just recognizing their, their call to ministry. And they, and they release them to go do the work of the ministry. And in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a cool verse to me. We see here that the church... They made some mistakes. Not sins, but just errors in judgment. Right? And as they continued to expand and to grow, they had to, to readjust and, and reorganize a little bit. But we see that they were willing to do that. They were willing to make changes. They were willing to make course corrections as needed. So often, I think all of us can get like this. People in general can get like this. We get in this mindset, you know, that this is the way we've always done it. My grandpa was a pastor in 1953, and he did church this way, and he, this is what he did. And because he did that, we need to check all those same boxes. You know, and I, I think that leads to, to error because we know this, Right? The gospel never changes. The Bible never changes. The truth never changes. But the way that we do ministry changes because our culture is ever-changing. And we, if we want to be effective ministers of the gospel, we need to change and adapt with our culture. As, as times change, the way we present the gospel needs to change. The way we do ministry needs to change. 
And we see here the church leadership in Acts chapter 6. They were, they were open to change. And they were responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We see this group of believers, they were willing to see their errors and make course corrections. And because of that, the church continued to grow. And it continued to expand. And we're going to see in the next few chapters that it begins to spread out throughout the whole known world. And Luke notes here that the number of believers greatly increased. As these men of God were faithful and obedient to follow the leading of the Spirit, things were happening. The Lord used them to, to impact the whole world. And Luke gives us an interesting little tidbit here. He notes that, that many of the priests believed too. We often, as we study through the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, we have this impression that all of the priests were wicked. That all of the Jewish priests were corrupt. That they all hated Jesus. And I don't think that that's true at all. It's very clearly true that the high priest and the high priestly family, which was largely political, right? they didn't care about spiritual matters. It's true that the high priest and the upper echelon, they hated Jesus because he was a, a threat to their system. He was a threat to their power base. He was a, a threat to their, their financial security. He was a threat to their influence. But there was an estimated 7,000 priests and 10,000 Levites that were in a regular ministry rota rotation at any time in Jerusalem. And most of these regular priests, these sort of rank-and-file priests, they were God-fearing men. They loved the Lord. And, you know, they were just, they were just poor, hard-working men of God. And they knew the Bible. They knew Psalm 22. They knew Isaiah 53. They knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And when he arrived, many of them realized that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. He was the one that they had been waiting for. And so we see that many of the priests, they become disciples. Many of the priests become followers of Jesus. Now, I don't know why, but for some reason, I just, I love that little tag on at the end of that verse. It, it really kind of just, it stirs my spirit up a little bit. I love the thought of these priests. These, these guys who are dedicated to the Lord, recognizing who Jesus was and coming to faith in him. To me, it's just a, it's just a cool picture of, of God's grace and his goodness. So was the church perfect here in Acts? No. There were mistakes. There were errors. But these men of God, they were faithful to their calling. And they were humble. They were willing to admit mistakes. They were willing to make changes. Someone once said this. In ministry and in life, failure is not an option. It is a requirement. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. 
In my personal experience, failure is the school where the Lord has taught me some of the most important lessons that I've ever learned. Right? Failure is where we grow. Now, I, I didn't start out being able to teach the Bible. And there were many Bible studies that I just utterly bombed. You know, I failed. And I was just thinking, actually, last week when Stuart was up here leading worship, you know, how he uh, sat through years of my youth pastor, you know, and he was in the I thought, man, I feel sorry for him, having to, have her, having to suffer through all those lessons that I was learning as the Lord was preparing me to be a pastor. All those poor people in Belize suffering while I, while I learned to pastor a church. But you know what? Leaders don't start out leaders. Pastors don't start out pastors. Worship leaders don't start out being able to lead worship. They stumble through and make mistakes and, and play the wrong chords and sing off key. Right? That's, that's sort of the process. Failure is sort of part of the process of, of becoming who it is that the Lord wants us to be. Servants of God, like everybody else, make mistakes. The question is this. Do you learn from your mistakes? Do you learn lessons from your failures? Are you teachable? Are you humble? Are you faithful to the small things that the Lord has called you to. If you're humble and you're teachable and, you, and you're willing to learn and you're seeking the Lord, He is going to do amazing things in your life. He's going to use you in ways that you can't even imagine. So I just want to encourage you to learn from the apostles' examples here. Do the best you can, of course. Use wisdom. But be willing to make course corrections. Be willing to be humble. Be willing to learn. And as we do that, we'll be a church that's used by God. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for this passage. That you take people like us, Lord, who are nobodies. And you train us. And you equip us, Lord, and you prepare us for the work of ministry. And I pray for everyone here who, who desires to be used in ministry, that you would help us to be faithful, Lord. And I pray for each one of us that you would give us a teachable spirit and a spirit of humility, Lord. That you would recognize that each one of us, that we're, that we're humble servants, Lord. pray that the root of pride wouldn't take root in any of our hearts. We ask that in your name, Jesus.